Welcome to the Thresholds podcast brought to you by Rahamim Ecology Centre. Sharing the voice of pioneers in spiritual ecology, facilitating new and ancient wisdom for the challenges of our earth community. Mary Judith Thress, known as Judy, is an ecofeminist theologian, journalist and editor who has been living and working in Latin America since 1970. A retired missionary and founder of the Consperando Collective and magazine, Judy has continued to live in Chile where she is a force in the ecological and women's movement. Among her writings is the widely acclaimed non-fiction work Ecofeminism in Latin America and two works of fiction, Bloodflowers and Different Gods, taking up contemporary theological questions. We spoke to Judy via Zoom from her home in Santiago. Welcome to Thresholds, Judy Ress. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you as well. You've done so much in your life and uh, what a fascinating story. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Um, Just to get us started, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your earliest memories as a child of something that you might call like a spiritual introduction or some sort of experience that you hold dear in terms of what where you've ended up today? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I reflect on that, all my family, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles and all my cousins, we all grew up on the same street and it was Mm -hmm. like we were a tribe. Right around the corner was our parish and our parish was uh, the center of our social life. And it was also uh, marked the year, all of the uh, liturgical uh, events. I um, remember so much the the cycles and the um, the smells, you know, in the autumn we had we had processions to Christ the King, but we also had hay rides. Um, in Advent, the, the the smells of the of the wreaths and the and the light and the shadow and and um, and then of course Easter with the spring and May with uh, with the month of Mary and all the Mary processions. We were very marked by ritual from the very beginning. Mm. Ritual geared to the seasons. It wasn't um, it wasn't just me and and the springtime. It was the whole community, the whole tribe in the springtime. That's what I've always looked for. Uh, wherever <laughs> I've gone, I've looked for a tribe, a community. From early formative years surrounded by community and ritual honouring the cycles of life, Judy describes the surprising impact of her devotion to Mary and the journey to becoming a missionary in El Salvador in 1970. As I look back, uh, and this has come out so much in my work later with women, I had this tremendous devotion to Mary, the mother of of Christ, in much more than either Christ or God. God was far away, God the Father. Uh, And uh, uh, Jesus, of course, we followed his life through the liturgical year, but um, after all, he was Mary's son. So I um, later, when I would look back on the on the presence of, uh, of Marian devotion, especially in Latin America, uh, I would remember my own deep devotion to Mary because if I did anything wrong, I went to her, mm-hmm. <laughs> not, yeah. not to uh, Jesus. So that, that marked me a lot. That experience of the tribe um, made me not really very keen on... Um, on getting married. And hmm. I mean, in, in my day, we could either 
uh, you could either become a nurse or a teacher or a secretary, and then you'd get married and live happily ever after. And it seemed to me that that that, that wasn't very exciting. And so I was always attracted to um, the nuns, both my grade school and my high school nuns, and I always thought they lived uh, quite adventuresome lives. Now we're talking, we're talking years ago, but even then they were, they were doing a lot more stuff than, <laughs> than it seemed like their, their counterparts were married. So uh, after high school, I, I joined the convent. I was a nun for, uh, for 14 years. And um, I was, um, I, I, again, uh, it was looking for that community. Uh, uh, and I must say those, especially the novitiate and college together uh, with these young women who um, we really felt we had to, um, well, serve, but in, in the best way, you know, um, to make people uh, be who they were supposed to be. Uh, the, uh, the slogan back then was, um, you know, become who you're supposed to become. So um, I, was, uh, I was put into um, high school teaching and I taught for... Um, for years in Cleveland, Ohio, in mm. uh, a, a rather um, upper class a school, I suppose. But those were the years too. I mean, um, I grew up with the civil rights movement, mm. the anti-war movement, the Vietnam War. Uh, I was um, I was put into Spanish to be a Spanish teacher, which I really didn't want. But because of that, I was also very much involved in the farm workers movements, Cesar Chavez. I took a whole bunch of kids out to, uh, out to um, Delano, California, and we worked uh, to get the, 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 the grape pickers to come out of the fields. And anyway, all those, all those causes, I was certainly a cause person if mm. there ever was one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as I used to tell people, I, I would teach, you know, the social doctrine of the Catholic Church, and um, um, and in that uh, teaching, I taught myself, I suppose, <laughs> um, and felt that uh, I really didn't want to be a high school teacher. I wanted to um, do something much more, much more in the line of being a missionary. So, in uh, 1970, mm -hmm. uh, the the chaplain of the high school where I taught was also um, connected to the mission, the Cleveland mission in El Salvador. And I applied and was uh, accepted to join the mission team there in El Salvador. Mm. Um, and, uh, those years changed my life. I mean, I hadn't ever seen poverty like that. And, um, mm. you know, really people did, children died of, of hunger and, and, and disease, malnutrition. Uh, our work, of course, was to form communities and in these communities to reflect on the gospel. But those were the years when um, liberation theology began to, uh, to surge. And uh, we were always, I still remember, we would gather people and uh, we would ask the question, is there injustice in your life? Mm. And there would be this big silence and then, people would start to shake their heads. Yes, yes, there is, mm. there is injustice. And then gradually, gradually, they would start to be able to name it and then see it 
as wrongs and see it as social sin. And of course, this in, in those years, that was very revolutionary, very mm. revolutionary. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, Wait, sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Judy, but um, when you went to El Salvador, were you still a nun at that stage? Yes, yes. Yeah. I, was, I was given uh, to the mission, to the mission, the Cleveland Mission Diocese as a nun. I so see. yes, I was a and we were a whole group of nuns and priests yeah. of uh, um, different orders uh, were uh -huh. there, the Ursulines and the Dominicans. And actually, which, I was there for two, two years. Right. Which order were you belonging to at that stage? This, this was the Sisters of the Humility of Mary. Mm. And um, we were also uh, working in, in Cleveland. So we mm -hmm. had this connection. And of course, uh, to, not to carry on this part of my life too much but um, the woman that replaced me was Sister Dorothy Kazel and she was one of the women that was killed in 1980 mm -hmm. you know by the by the military and those four women were my companions and so I've been very marked by their um, their lives and my first novel which is um, about uh, it's a fictionalized version of, of their lives uh, mm -hmm. Blood flowers is dedicated to them. I see. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, lots happened in El Salvador uh, mm -hmm. um, in those years. Uh, I worked. Um, clearly, we could see that women didn't speak in these meetings. They were they mm -hmm. just felt so uh, disempowered. And so, another colleague and myself started a program to work with uh, with women, just to get them just to get them to be able to talk, so yeah. just to be able to express themselves. Um, so right from the beginning, I, uh, I worked with, with women, um, um, poor women, to get them to be able to speak their word, so to speak. <laughs> um, but it was hard and it was hot and I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought, oh my golly, I'm just not prepared for this. I had what I would call today a crisis of faith and, um, and left El Salvador and left religious life and, mm. um, and decided I'd do something else. I went to Chicago and was, was working uh, in, um, in different so social organizations, but I still couldn't get out of my craw Latin America. Mm. Amid startling conditions as a courageous yet inexperienced missionary, Judy takes us inside her experience at the birthplace of liberation theology in Peru, working with field workers affected by injustice. So, um, and, and this is always a funny story, uh, the National Catholic Reporter is probably the paper that, uh, you know, progressive Catholics read. Yeah. And there, there was a section in it called Ad Random, where there were different um, opportunities for courses or for jobs or whatever. And there was an advertisement asking for a third world volunteer to go to Peru. And I answered the ad. I joined uh, the priest who was, who was inviting us along with uh, uh, the rest of the team. And um, my second great adventure to Latin America was to go to this tiny little village in the Andes called Huarachuri with uh, the priest David and the team that he put together uh, and we were up in the middle of a world that was so different from the western world 
that um, even today, when I look back on it, I feel, oh my goodness, um, uh, <laughs> what a privilege to be in, in this Campesino world where, um, well, there wasn't any light, you know, it was this little village of 2,000 people, uh, uh, 10,000 feet above sea level, and we were again to try to be uh, the parish and, and do pastoral work, but it was very hard because people left for the fields, you know, at six o'clock in the morning and then came back at night and to try to have meetings at night. I still remember us trying to do, you know, our work in, um, in conscientización, as we called it back then, to get people to become aware of exploitation. I mean, we, we, come, we came out of liberation theology where, you know, the, uh, we, uh, the, we all were making the option for the oppressed and how to work with oppressed people. We had a, a methodology that came from uh, Pablo Freire, who is a great Brazilian educator, I don't know if a lot of people have heard of his book, Pedagogy for the Oppressed. Mm. And it gave us a methodology on how to ask these gener generative questions to pull answers out of the people as, as you help them learn how to reflect uh, critically on their situation. Mm. Well, we had been trained in that methodology, but of course, everybody fell asleep on us at <laughs> night. There wasn't any light. Um, um, but it was, it was still a, a wonderful time in the sense that um, it was so different. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, um, and uh, um, I called it my contemplative years because uh, uh, it, it was hard to cross the divide because most people lived, went to their, to their fields and spent the day in their fields. And if you went to visit them in their fields, um, they really weren't wanting to talk with you. They wanted to, you know, work the field. Mm. As liberation theology began to spread, the challenge of contrasts in Peruvian society began to show up, leading to Judy's band of pastoral agents being ousted. Her next adventures eventually led her to Chile and El Salvador as a journalist, a human rights developer, and a mother. The, uh, Peruvian church at that time was also very divided between a very progressive uh, line, which would have been liberation theology, and the father of liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez, is Peruvian, and he was there in those years, versus a very traditional uh, church as well. So um, in our case, our, uh, our pastoral group all of a sudden found themselves being thrown out because of our pastoral approach. So um, it, even today, it's written up in the in the church, the Peruvian church records of how they threw a, a whole group of us out. We were about twenty five uh, pastoral agents working in uh, part of the uh, the uh, mountain region uh, of Guarachiri and Huancayo. Um, were thrown out, and Opus Dei people were brought in. So mm -hmm. just to say that we sort of. Uh, um, we were thrown out. <laughs> Meanwhile, what happened uh, is that uh, David and I, the priest and I, fell in love. <laughs> and, uh, it was happening in those years also all over. <laughs> and um, uh, we married in, uh, in 1977. And, uh, but our marriage was always seen as uh, a chance to double the 
effectiveness, I suppose. Um, and right away we were invited to return to Latin America, but this time to Chile uh, uh, by the American Friends Service Committee, which are the Quakers. And um, Chile was in the midst of um, a dictatorship and we were asked to go to Chile and uh, work in the area of human rights. So in 1977, David and I, newly married, take off for Chile <laughs> and work uh, very much with the um, Vicariate of Solidarity, which is the, uh, was the um, Catholic Church's uh, human rights organization. Um, mm. And again, very, very uh, um, formative years for us. Um, those years, too, our, our two children were born mm -hmm. and um, uh, heightened heightened um, human rights development. And um, in the end, uh, we had to leave Chile because um, they accused, the, the, the dictatorship accused us in, in, in meddling in the affairs of state because we were doing human rights work. Mm. So we left in 81 and went back to Peru. And in Peru, because we'd been writing about what was happening in Chile, we were asked to take over a, a small um, uh, publication uh, that was a weekly uh, uh, bulletin that talked about what was happening in Latin America, supposedly from the perspective of the poor, supposedly from the perspective of um, liberation theology. So um, from being a, a human rights worker, I became a journalist uh, and, and the great privilege of those years, now we're talking about the years of the 80s, was to be able to interview all of these people mm -hmm. who were engaged in, in changing Latin America. Um, those were the years when Central America came into the fore with, um, with uh, you know, um, the revolution in Nicaragua, in El Salvador again, in, uh, in Guatemala to be able to interview those people too. Uh, people, you know, that were priests and nuns, mostly a lot of, of uh, these wonderful, um, brave people who were, who were living with the, with the poor and, and, and be, were being able to really uh, criti criticize what was happening and tell us really uh, all the abuse that was happening and then we could, we could get it out there. So that was what we did in, in the 80s. Now pushing the boundaries of liberation theology, Judy shares how she came to be a feminist and then an eco-feminist in what she calls a conversion influenced by the work of Thomas Berry. Judy then founded the magazine and women's collective Conspirando, whose proclaimed mission today is to empower us as women from Latin America and the Caribbean to be autonomous persons, as well as to promote relationship of reciprocity and respect for ourselves and our environment. I have to go back and say that I don't exactly know when I became a feminist, but I think I was always a feminist. I can remember in the little village of Wadachiri at night over candlelight reading reading some of the classic texts of, uh, of uh, feminist theology or, and thinking, oh, of course I believe that. You know, <laughs> uh, you know Rosemary Radford Ruth or mm. Mary Daly saying, yes, 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 yes. So, I mean, and I, was, I always was working with women in, mm. in Huaritari as well, and again, in, in the first time in Chile. And then uh, when I was doing journalism work in, in um, 
uh, Peru, uh, we started a little group called Salita Kumi, which means uh, young woman arise. And we started a reflection group on, um, on feminist theology, feminist uh, thinking, um, and also challenging liberation theology a bit. Um, and we had workshops and gatherings, and it was, it was a great group. Then, uh, <laughs> uh, in 89, uh, we had the opportunity to go to Rome for a year uh, to try to work with um, IDOC, which was a, a, a thing set up after Vatican II. And um, again, I was in charge of the magazine, and the, uh, the idea was to have a magazine that brought together ecology and theology from the third world. And it was there that I had my, um, my conversion, where I started reading about ecofeminism, and also I read Thomas Berry's Dream of the Earth. Uh-huh. And it was like, oh my God, it was like the, uh, falling off my horse, you know? I mean, it was a total con- uh, 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 conversion. I, I, of course, why didn't I see this before, you know? <laughs> Um, so I, uh, my feminism became eco-feminism, mm. and as we looked at, uh, always we were looking to unmask patriarchy, but if we only saw patriarchy as it's, um, uh, how it, it dominates women and people of color and poor, I didn't see it until reading Thomas Berry that, of course, patriarchy is also responsible for what it's done to the earth and how both women and, and the earth, instead of being fountains of life, have become resources. And so it just from then on, I was a, I was a convert to um, eco, eco-feminism, mm. which takes, I suppose, me to the present. Yeah. <laughs> because from, from Rome, um, came back to Chile in, in uh, 1991 after uh, Chile returned to democratic rule. And... Um, my big thing was to, uh, now that I, I fell in love with journalism, and I said, Latin America needs a magazine, uh, needs a journal, yes. And um, that's when um, Conspirando was born. Mm. The name of the magazine and the name of our women's collective is called Conspirando. And it's, uh, it's not conspiracy, it's Conspirando, which means breathing with. Mm-hmm. And so always we have seen um, our name as something to, you know, as, as, as this web of air, breath, whatever that, um, that is emerging. In her work as an ecofeminist theologian, Judy shares the importance of encouraging women to get to the meaning of the evolving stories and images that form us and co-creating the new story emerging now. Women... Uh, that I've worked with all my life here in Latin America, you know, grassroots women have, I've had to work, or we've had to work with them um, on their concept of God, because mm-hmm. their concept of God has always been the God who punishes, the God who sees everything they do, the God who is after them. I mean, we've done w- workshops where they, they show their image of God. Mm-hmm. And while it could be, uh, it could be a kind father. A lot of times it's a, it's a big eye always watching you. So the whole thing was to try to um, 
work with women so they didn't feel so guilty, um, so much like they're the, like Eve, the responsible for all of the um, uh, maldition and uh, all of the evil in the world. How could we uh, work on that? And there's, there's loads of ways you can work on that. But one of the things we started to do in Conspirando was to um, look at the, the myth of Genesis, our story of meaning, supposedly, and, um, and try to unmask what was actually happening there. Mm-hmm. And also to see it as a story, to see it mm-hmm. as a story that those people told to explain their world. Once we saw Genesis as a story or as a, as a myth, we said, wow, let's look at other stories <laughs> and other myths. So we began to search back before, before um, Genesis. And we looked at, of course, the Sumeria. We looked at, at uh, Babylon, the killing of uh, the, the Babylonian myth, uh, the killing of the great goddess Tiamat by Marduk. Anyway, we saw that... Um, that all through history there were these uh, these myths that gave people their sense of meaning, and we also mm-hmm. looked at myths here in Latin America. And to, together with myth, we, myth, we started looking as well at um, at images of God, and there is where we had our great revelation because we could, as we went back and looked way way back into early history or what is called deep history the first images of the sacred were uh, these, these what were called Venus figures, supposedly because they were somehow obscene, but they were these, these images of pregnant women because they represented the earth as being fertile and pregnant. So we had this whole sense of, of the evolution of images of the holy which of course helped so much to help us get rid of, of the father God image. Mm-hmm. And, and so what has happened to us over these years is that we realize that um, images change, uh, but we need images of the holy. And also our stories of meaning change over the years as we ourselves change. And that's where the thinking of Thomas Berry and, and the new cosmology has helped us because we see that um, that uh, uh, evolution in, in our evolution we've always moved into new understandings of who we are, and of course Thomas said it's now time for a new myth, mm. and um, uh, and that's what we're doing today here in Chile. We're trying to uh, to uh, give meaning to who we are through other images and other ways of celebrating. One of the big contributions I feel we've made uh, over the years is, uh, is in ritual. We make our own rituals. We celebrate what needs to be celebrated. And here is where we go back to the first experience that I grew up with back in my little parish. Hmm. We celebrate the cycles, yeah. we celebrate the seasons. And of course, this is just so natural to the women here because we're only 500 years away from um, the conquest of, of Latin America. Mm-hmm. Before uh, the introduction of Christianity here, there were all of these other, other um, beliefs, but mostly the indigenous people believed in, uh, in the great round, that everything is cyclical, everything is, is in, in fours, you know, 
and and the gods are fours or twos. I mean, there's always the father god and, the, and of course the mother earth, the Pachamama, is much, much more important than um, than uh, than the father god who seems so far away. Hmm. Hmm. Um, which also has something to do with one one of the things we've done over the years is um, then look at because here in Latin America the devotion to Mary is so strong, much stronger mm. than um, devotion to Jesus. So um, we decided to look at the fiestas, the different uh, Marian feasts and the different Marian uh, shrines and see if there was any earlier earlier uh, uh, legend that had been suppressed. And yes, there was. Of course, the most famous is, is, is in Mexico where our Lady of Guadalupe, mm. of course, it, before she was Our Lady of Guadalupe, she was the mother goddess of Tonantzin of the Aztecs. Well, this this is this is all through Latin America. I mean, um, it's funny in, in up in the north of Chile, there's a feast uh, called the Tirana, which means the tyrant, and it's supposedly the the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, but it isn't. There's something else going on, and the legend is that um, when this Spaniards tried to conquer this tribe of Aymara people, uh, descendants of the Inca. Um, one of the princesses escaped and set up her own little resistance community uh, in the north of Chile and wouldn't let anybody in <laughs> that, was, that didn't believe in, in the ancient ways. Um, anyway, the story goes that basically she was killed, but... Uh, but she formed this resistance community, and they're really celebrating her, not the not the not Our Lady of Mount Carmel. But there's all of this present just below the surface. So um, this has all led us to believe, and this is, I suppose, where I can um, sort of end at the moment. Uh, that what we've always longed for as a species is belonging, mm. belonging. And so our, when we've rediscovered these earlier images of the, uh, of the goddesses, of the mother, we, um, we've discovered that um, we're from the earth. And so, I mean, our first images uh, are from, uh, are, were these images of, of the pregnant woman. And so, um, I go back to my devotion to Mary, you know, uh, the, this need that the mother is so key to our psyche and it's a sense of, um, of uh, belonging. And so mm. the earth is really, as always the indigenous people have told us, is our mother mm. and we come from her and we go back to her. And, and this of course uh, affects all we do if we realize that um, that the earth is not um, is not a, a thing or a, conglo a conglomeration of resources, but our actual mother. Then we have to really change who we are, you mm -hmm. know. And that's where um, this whole experience of um, of who we who we really are. We really are earthlings. We come from her, and we go back to her, and. While indeed uh, our planet is part of, of a galaxy and, and of all the stars, nevertheless, um, we come from her and, and, and we go back to her. Mm. So uh, my work is 
is shouting all over the place. You know, um, the earth is alive. We come from her. We go back to her. Uh, we are earthlings, not uh, not uh, extraterrestrials. <laughs> and that's where I am today. Well, <laughs> what a journey, Judy. Thank you yes. so much for sharing all of that. I have so many things I want to ask now. Um, so it's a, it seems to me it's a journey from, say, your, your early missionary years as a liberation theologian, bringing yes. this new thinking to Latin America um, at a time when women were not speaking and then breaking open feminist theology as well. So liberation theology led to feminist and then that led to eco-theology. So the whole thing is now all included as the oppressed, as that not receiving justice and trying to correct that. Am I, am I right in thinking that's the... That's, that's, the... Ab that's absolutely right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And now, um, so as a theologian, how do you see theology fitting into this? Well, um, my colleagues and I, and I am not, I mean, I'm, I represent a whole group of, of Latin American uh, um, feminist theologians, ecofeminist theologians, probably the most famous is uh, Ivone Guevara from Brazil. Um, we, don't, we, we don't know if we even can call ourselves theologians any longer because we are so much more interested in, in cosmos cosmovisions, cosmo, mm. cosmo, uh, cosmologies. And um, the question of theo, logos, God, is, um, is too small for us now. Because it isn't that we've become atheists or agnostics, but we talk about that we live in this great mystery that is evolving. Many of us are uh, very much influenced by Teilhard de Chardin, who mm -hmm. said that um, we live in a constant cosmogenesis. Mm -hmm. So we're constantly um, uh, in, in, in transformation. And so while we, need, uh, while we need story, while we need a story to tell us who we are, um, uh, we now would question very much uh, the story that's been handed down to us uh, uh, through Christianity. Not that it is wrong. It's just that now it's not adequate. Mm. And, um, you know, some of the best theologians today would even say, unless Christianity itself evolves, it's no longer Christianity. So mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't consider myself a post-Christian or anything, but uh, I, um, certainly we have to open up our understanding of uh, of who we are and where we're going, you know, uh, mm. and uh, and again, there's been much more work than I've done, you know, on, on the Trinity and relationality, and uh, uh, you know, what is the next evolutionary uh, step for our our species? And clearly, it's more um, relationality. So, you mm -hmm. know, the Trinity is an example of that, mm -hmm. um, but uh, the truth of it is, um, although we're still invited to give talks at the <laughs> theological conferences, rather than to uh, the theologians or the theological movements of today, I think we're more in touch with uh, the ecology movements and the, um, 
this whole sense of deep ecology, that everything is connected. When we look at where, um, where revelation is coming from today, we're looking uh, again to what we've forgotten, which are our original peoples. They have such wisdom that, uh, that we haven't uh, allowed them to express. And as um, the deep ecologists say, we, we live in a community of species. So let's mm -hmm. listen to the other species. Mm -hmm. There's so much, as you know, uh, going on about how the trees communicate, you know, yeah. or, or, how, uh, or how the species relate with, within their species. Other species relate to other species. We don't even, we don't even play a part there. So <laughs> um, uh, that is... Uh, what seems to be the the great um, uh, desire at this point to uh, to go more and more into the heart the heart of the universe the what it makes everything uh, still beat <laughs> mm -hmm. and and yes I would mm -hmm. say too uh, we're calling on uh, on on people because there's such a thirst for spirituality we're mm -hmm. calling on people. Um, to listen and to be much more uh, contemplative. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear more about that in a moment, but just reflecting on your book, Different Gods, how yes. there's a character in that book, who an elderly man who thinks he is St. Francis and yes. he's on a mission to restore the Catholic Church. What's the meaning of this character in this book? There's two people. Uh, there's the famous Sister Mary Claire, who's the sister who you know and love, and she's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's, she's a great, great, great friend, and she's working with the poor, and she's working with women. And then this guy who uh, has had these experiences, yes, he's had these experiences of another way. He's been um, touched by what has happened to him in the Amazon with um, the Shipibo people and has become himself a, sh a shaman. Mm -hmm. And um, the book tries to deal with uh, the, the clash between uh, the most progressive Christian on the block, who is Sister Mary Claire, <laughs> and the man who shows up who has been totally um, traumatized by what he's been through. He was a Catholic priest and he's been now touched by um, by the whole shamanic tradition from the Amazon and and it's a different way of knowing we're writing novels some of us uh, <laughs> because it's a much better way to teach than to teach theology <laughs> <laughs> which nobody reads yeah. so maybe they'll read the novels so it's this conflict between two ways of knowing mm. our, our, our Western Christian way and this way of the shamanic way uh, here in Latin America, again, uh, the, the shamanic tradition, which comes out of the indigenous tradition, is very powerful. It connects you with these other worlds. It connects you with the worlds of our, of our ancestors. We can explain it psychologically by saying, well, it's really you're connecting yourself to the, um, to the greater consciousness or to the collective consciousness. But nevertheless, you're connecting to a wisdom that's there. You can get insights through this other way of knowing here here in chile and, and in in latin america there's um, there's movements to listen to these voices through the way they pray which is through a, a sort of a, a shamanic kind of trance and 
because we come out of the Christian tradition, which is much more maybe logical, uh, it's hard to connect to that unless we would remember that we also have a mystical tradition. This connects a bit with the, um, with the shamanic, I would say. Mm-hmm. Or at least I don't find a contradiction. Um, mm-hmm. But it isn't, it isn't um, rational. But then all of this whole thing of, of our, of our um, moving into the next stage of our own evolution certainly is, um, is beyond rational. It's intuitive. It's intuitive. And so what are we, are we intuiting? The, the shamanic uh, gives that sort of opening again. Mm. Mm. I was interested that, you know, he, he had this mission of wanting to restore the Catholic Church, this priest who'd had the experience as a shaman as well. And yes. I'm just curious about your thoughts on, you know, what is it about the Catholic Church or Christianity that we can actually hold on to and conserve us now? Ah, yes. People ask me that a lot because <laughs> they think maybe I'm post-Christian. <laughs> Perhaps I am. There's been such scandal in the Catholic Church here, mm. too, in Chile. So uh, we've had to really uh, back away from institutional Catholicism and go back to uh, to the heart of the gospel. And, mm. and again, I always say that Jesus' message was so, so clear. He said... We come from the same source, so we're all brothers and sisters, and so we must love one another. Mm. And as we work on building um, a much more sense of collective, getting past this, this huge phase of individualism that we've been going through for the past 5,000 years, as we move into a new time, that message is more, um, more relevant than ever. We are all brothers and sisters, you know? So, uh, and there's some exciting things that are happening all over, new ways of, of celebrating, mm. new ways of feeling alive and part of, and, um, and that now it's not just uh, uh, the human community, it's also um, the community of, of the earth, and it's also our ancestors, and it's also those who are to come. And so um, it's what, you know, I guess it was Brian Swim that said we always were and always will be because of the whole uh, way evolution works, you know, from mm. the Big Bang throughout all of all of all of evolution. So um, uh, it's always finding our place in the great Mandela. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like you mentioned earlier that we need a new myth, um, you know, coming out of Thomas Berry's thought. But, yes. And you're at the coal face of really creating that and designing new rituals that celebrate what needs to be celebrated and yet you're bringing elements of the traditional myths with you when you do that how important is that the connection between the old and the new for it depends on where you are on the age spectrum spectrum i think um the women i've worked with all my life still need the connections and again uh, Christianity has so many wonderful metaphors and, and, and scripture as well. So it's very easy to, to pull those out. For the younger generation, I'm not so sure that it's that uh, needing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't necessarily need uh, that connection except for the link they might have to their grandparents mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and understand where, where they come from. 
but their experience of um, of grace uh, is different, and um, uh, they're 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 moved by people. They're moved by story, of course, but they're not going to um, they're not going to be Catholic in the way that um, that my generation was. Mm. And how about the? Um, I'm interested in your devotion to Mary and how many are seeing now that Mary is really an archetype, if you like, of Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. And um, yes. yes, you know, how do you see yes. that emerging in your life? Um, to me, again, I've been so uh, struck with the devotion to the Pachamama here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Pachamama is the Earth Mother. And like, it's just in every ritual that we do, and we do rituals through Conspirando, uh, um, it's just automatic to thank the Earth. Mm. Um, and, and, and again, um, uh, the best thing you can do for a group on a retreat is to take them to some place where they can actually feel the uh, the embrace of the earth. Mm. I have a, um, a meditation center up here in the mountains, about an hour outside of Santiago, and um, the center of it is the labyrinth. Actually, we have a, a mm. labyrinth, and people walk the labyrinth because the labyrinth reflects their own journey. And um, again, it's it's pre-Christian, Christian, and post-Christian, and in the walking to the center, and when one again finds her or his center which is, again, the center of the universe, um, grounds us, grounds mm-hmm. us. And then the center um, is in the middle of the Andes. And so you also feel embraced by, by these mountains that are so mm-hmm. ancient. And again, um, our, I think most of us who are in this quest, including yourself, knows that when we're most ourselves or most of the peace is when we are in some part of nature that allows us to relax and rest and feel that we're at home Mm -hmm. Uh, and so my whole thing is yes uh, let us come back home let Mm -hmm. us come back home to play which is uh, wherever you are in that little space that you hold uh, as part of the great mother and since the great mother is so dominant in all the other cultures it's a Mm -hmm. shame that we lost sight of her and the only real person that was left was mary but you could never really get rid of the feminine Mm -hmm. in the godhead Mm -hmm. i'm just reflecting on how you're providing the center of peace in a place that is so violent and chaotic and uprisings occurring even now I mean, I know you're fond of quoting that Chinese proverb, may we live in interesting times. Um, (laughs) What are your reflections on life in Chile at the moment? Well, I mean, I don't think we could, we were predicting this, Mm -hmm. uh, but because um, most Chileans just were trying to make ends meet, although stress was growing and and trauma, um, in the end, the neoliberal uh, capitalist model that was put in by the dictatorship continued even after Chile returned to democracy. And this meant that everything was privatized and it meant that everything became expensive. So you didn't have, if you didn't have the money, 
you couldn't buy health care. If you didn't have the money, you had to send your kids to the to the uh, municipal school, which didn't have much funding. And so, um, and, and water got privatized, light got privatized, everything, electricity be became privatized. The roads cost so much. All, all the highways have huge um, costs to go in and out of, of, a, of a highway. So pretty soon people couldn't take it. And so there was this huge just collapse when they raised the price of the metro just by a few cents, but it was the straw that broke the camel's back. So now um, we've got, I mean, every day there's protests and they're, and they're huge. And people are saying we have to change our whole way. The critique is against the system, but at the same time, we're experiencing the climate crisis. Mm. Chile has had one of the worst droughts that it's had ever, and we have a real water shortage. And we are also uh, having fires, just like you're having over there, mm -hmm. uh, because of the drought. Um, so there's this rising um, ang anguish um, that I see. And um, I think this crisis, the political and economic crisis, um, as the country reflects, they'll also reflect uh, into a new way of organizing ourselves. That's my hope that the, the what people are calling the green the green deal or the, um, the sustainable uh, living um, eco villages, uh, new ways of organizing, uh, you know, closed circuit economics that. Because one of the, the things that we have managed to do is to um, agree that we will write a new constitution. And this is going to be a long process and we'll fight over things. But I, my hunch is that this is a turning point for uh, Chile to come up with a new way. So despite the, the, the terrible upheaval and the human rights abuse again, which we're watching very closely, also um, is this, there, there's, there's narco traffic mixed up in it. I mean, what's happening in Chile is, I think, a prototype of what's happening in other countries as well, as this system breaks down, mm. this, this extreme capitalism breaks down. So um, I think it's the time of uh, what, you know, Joanna Macy calls the great turning. Mm. We have a sense of something new. And there's a lot of us that have been working for years on, you know, this new sense of who we are as a species, a new sense of, um, of the ecological self, as it were, not just me, but the, the, the larger sense of self that could, could um, prevail, mm. but we don't know. It's, it's all very volatile and it's all very fragile, but um, uh, I, at this point, you know, um, there, there's this irresistible sequence of continual transformation. Mm. And so we ho hold on to that. We hold on to that. Yeah, and I read in one of your reflections that it's not that there's an inspirational leader guiding all of this transformation. It's actually mm -hmm. really grassroots. Um, yes. You know, town hall meetings and people getting together and, yes. you know. 
that's the amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all these years, we have been trying to work on um, on what we call feminist leadership, mm-hmm. which is not one person, that we work in teams and in collectives and in holons, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, and, and bear responsibilities as, as the talents are there and then they're not there. So that there's no one charismatic leader. That, that time is over. But um, it could look like it's leaderless. Um, but there's, yeah, it's these grassroots leaders that are coming out and that are, uh, are very wise. And, um, and we're learning once again how to listen to them in small groups. And these, here in Chile, uh, these um, what are called cabildos, which are these small groups getting together to talk about what they want and, what, and what, where, where, uh, where, where we should go. Um, are amazing. People mm-hmm. are listening to one another again, and they're um, they're respectful, and um, and I think people themselves are surprised at how much wisdom there is in the local group, mm-hmm. uh, and that too has a lot to do with uh, with being you know listening over the years. So um, people who don't even have that much education have so much wisdom. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a very interesting time in terms of of leadership. Yeah. Mm. So, Judy, um, what sorts of practices do you engage with yourself through all of this to, to keep yourself centred and peaceful and able to provide this, you know, deep pool of, of, of beauty and peace that you provide to others? How, what, what's going on inside your personal practices? <laughs> you use the right word, pool. <laughs> I try to swim. I try to swim every day. It's not every <laughs> day, right. every day. Yeah. because I find swimming as I, I can swim off all the tension and the anger, and I have I free my mind uh, to get into deeper things. So, but my first practice is swimming. Hmm. I think it's following West, something more um, more inspiring, but it's swimming. I also do qigong, hmm. uh, and find that very very um, uh, grounding. Um, I walk the labyrinth at least every season. Um, I uh, do uh, circle dancing. Hmm. I uh, also do bio dance, which is a kind of uh, music therapy. And again, it forms community. Uh, and I um, also have been involved for some time in circles of, um, of shamanic practices of, of hmm. uh, following a certain kind of process so uh, and um i'm just about game for anything but <laughs> and because um through conspiranda and through the center we try to offer um what people seem to need we uh try to match our own lives with the season we're celebrating you know mm-hmm. so in, in in the autumn ritual what have we harvested in our own lives for this year you know that sort of thing mm-hmm. um and, and this this grounds us this and, and grounds me as well. It sounds like you're truly walking the path that you are guiding others on. <laughs> and um, what do people what, what do the women say about about time with you having spent some time with you? What, what, what would be their reflections that you hear? Well, um, now interestingly enough, there's a real opening. Of- to ecofeminism of mm. late 
we've been called upon to give webinars and conferences and be parts of panels. Um, uh, and because it's, it's answering this awakening to um, among feminists who want something more than just, you know, um, their demands of more equality. Uh, there's this whole yearning for this connection to the earth. So um, uh, we're finding a, uh, that um, ecofeminism is, is very alluring. Mm -hmm. um, here in Latin America, it's also called communal feminism. And, and it's, um, uh, it's quite rooted in indigenous women as well, mm -hmm. because uh, they're talking again about the rhythms of the earth that are in their heritage that it's built in so um we're finding uh that you know uh, we're being listened to and and people are reading our work and and uh, mm. um and and there is there are young young women now that are um very much engaged in this so um uh it's like um it's it's uh, ecofeminism's time has come uh, mm. um, a great mentor, one of the uh, one of the midwives of Conspirando, said, way back in the '90s, she said, um, "Feminism has to evolve toward ecofeminism because it just has to." Mm. So there you go. Yeah. Well, Judy, I feel like we could talk for another couple of hours at least we might have to pause there and maybe come back to you another time <laughs> which would be wonderful I think yes I have my watcher because we've been talking for over an hour yeah so we better, we better yeah but if people want to um sort of read more and connect with your thinking um there's different gods blood flowers these are the titles of your those two are, novels those are, those are the two novels yes yeah. blood flowers and different gods yeah. but I have a, my, um, my work on ecofeminism in Latin America uh, is in a nonfiction work, which is um, uh, in um, an Orbis publication just called uh, Ecofeminism in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's in a series called Women from the Margins. And that has the work of, uh, of the foundations of, of uh, of Latin American ecofeminism, and it's based on um, interviews I did with 12 women in Latin America, how they moved from liberation theology to feminist theology to ecofeminism. Mm. So uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it's well worth reading if mm. you're not trying to read a novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, what prophetic and pioneering work um, you have always done in your whole journey. And uh, I just really want to honour that and thank you for that. And thank you so much for sharing your whole story with us. Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to next time, Judy. Okay, Sally. Thank you so much. And thanks to Anne as well. Yeah, thank you. The Thresholds team at Rahamim live, work and create this podcast on the lands which have been and always will be Wiradjuri country. We give our respect and gratitude to their elders, past, present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, 
spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, .org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.